John chapter 11, and today we're going to be looking at verses 38 through 44. John 11, verse 38. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. This is the tomb of Lazarus. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. That's about as far as we'll get today, but that's plenty far enough. If you go to the Smithsonian Institute of American History, you'll find a lot of stuff there. You'll find a book if you look hard enough. And this book is called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It's not long. It's about 84, 85 pages. And it's just over about 200 years old. Matter of fact, some of you may be familiar with this book. You may have heard it termed the Jefferson Bible. And it's named after the man who put it together, Thomas Jefferson, our third president. By his own admission... And historians, he never really intended to have this book published. It was more or less something that he put together as a collection of the events of Jesus' life and teachings. It's assembled very similar to a scrapbook. If you've ever done a scrapbook or made scrapbooks before, right? You cut out pictures, you cut out things, and you paste them to a page. That's what Jefferson did. Except he took a razor and he took four different translations of the Bible the Greek, the English King James Version, the French and the Latin. What he did was he took a razor and he cut out certain passages of scripture and pasted them to a journal. He made his own collection of the life and teachings of Jesus. On its face, that's really not a bad thing. I mean, every word in the Jefferson Bible is God's word. There was no original thought. It's a chronological record of Jesus' life and teaching, really, of all four gospels. It starts off with Luke, bounces back and forth in the Gospels, unfolding the events and teachings of Jesus. Now, when you get to about page 37, you'll see John 9. We've, we're working through the Gospel of John here. We're in John chapter 11. And when you get to John chapter 9, he starts in verses 1 and 2 and then 3, and then he stops after verse 3. Then he goes into the book of Luke, and for about 20 more pages, you have Matthew and Luke back together. But then around page 54, 55, you get back to the Gospel of John, and it actually picks up in John chapter 12. So he's got a little bit of John 10 somewhere smattered in those 20 pages, 
But John 11 is completely absent from what has been known to be called the Jefferson Bible. He never called it a Bible, but it's been called that. You see, Jefferson was making a book that was more about his own self-edification. And he saw Jesus as a great teacher and as a great philosopher. But Jefferson intentionally excluded anything supernatural and really all references or inferences to anything that presented Jesus as God, Jesus' divinity, or really anything supernatural. So the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth begins with the account of Jesus' birth, like I said, Luke 2, but there were no references to angels. There's no reference to genealogies. There's no reference in Jefferson's Bible to prophecy. No miracles, no references to the Trinity, no references to the divinity of Jesus, and Jesus' resurrection was also conspicuously absent. Matter of fact, if you go to the last page, it will end with John 19 in this verse. Now, in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There they laid Jesus, and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher, and departed. The end. That was the end of Jesus' usefulness, if I could put it that way, to Jefferson. We're in John chapter 11. And if you could have guessed, John 11, 38 through 44, didn't make the cut for Jefferson's Bible. This miracle, the raising of Lazarus, has been called by many scholars as the climax of Jesus' ministry. Some have called it the greatest of his public signs. In the Gospel of John, this is his seventh sign. And it's his last public sign. Because by the time you get to the end of John 11, we, we see Jesus and his disciples moving out of the public eye, and we see a warrant out for Jesus' arrest. Now, for us here at Grace, like I said, we've been working through the Gospel of John. This is our fifth Sunday in John chapter 11. We spent all of August, and now going into September, talking about John chapter 11. Why so much time? On this chapter especially. Because in this chapter, John is preparing the reader for the linchpin of Christianity. The cornerstone of our faith in Jesus Christ, which is the resurrection of the dead. You cannot have Christianity without the resurrection. And you cannot have resurrection without Jesus having authority over death. The resurrection of Lazarus shows that Jesus has authority over death. And his own resurrection from the dead shows that all who die in Christ will be resurrected to the eternal life. Amen. So Jesus says this early in John 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. One author put it this way. John 11 is one of the many moments in the Gospels where the idea that Jesus is just a good teacher gets smashed to the ground like a piece of cheap pottery. Good teachers do not claim to be the resurrection and the life. The source of life itself, the one without whom is life and without whom even death is life. But that's what Jesus claims. In this moment with Martha, Jesus claims that faith in him can conquer death itself. Martha's trust in Jesus is not just a means to an end to bring her brother back. It is the source of her own life as well. 
So from this passage, I'm going to focus on really two things. First of all, we're going to see that by raising Lazarus, Jesus overturns our instinctive response to death. But then secondly, and really by implication, by raising Jesus, I'm sorry, by raising, by raising Lazarus, Jesus asserts himself into our lives. Okay, so first, let's look at how Jesus overturns our instinctive response to death. What is our instinctive response to death? It's really the response that the mourners in the story had. You see, the response to death in the first century isn't that different than the response to death in the 21st century. Man's instinctive response to death is that death is final. And in raising Lazarus, Jesus push, pushes back against death's finality. Death is not that different. Like I said, John wants the reader to know that Lazarus wasn't just passed out. He wasn't just sleeping for four days. There's careful details in this passage that John lays out to make it unmistakable, unmistakably clear. Lazarus had, in fact, died. Everyone assumed that he was dead and knew that he was dead. He was really dead. And Jesus really brought a dead person back to life. In verse 21, Martha says, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. In verse 32, Mary says the same thing. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. In verse 37, the Jews assembled there said, Could this man who opened the eyes of the blind not have also kept this man from dying? You see, there's kind of an assumption in all three. You know what? If Jesus were here, something could have been done, but he's dead. Now, they're not just saying that matter-of-factly. They're saying that in the form of attending a funeral. That's what they were there for. They were attending a funeral. They were mourning. The testimony of these people belies the fact that they had enough in faith in Jesus to be able to keep Lazarus from dying. But now that he was dead, there really was very little to be done. Now, Martha, in verse 39, is what we just read, said, By this time there will be a stench. For he's been dead four days. But look how John, the author here, describes Lazarus. Verse 9, or I'm sorry, verse 39. Martha, the sister of the deceased. I don't think those words are accidental. First of all, we know who Martha is. She's all throughout John 11. But the sister of the deceased. No, this was the one whose brother had in fact died. John's point is, again, to emphasize that Lazarus was really dead. The people assembled there, again, were not there to see a miracle. They didn't come to see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. We, the reader, know what happens at the end of this chapter. And I think it's almost not fair, in a sense. Because you start reading John 11, you're like, oh, I know what's going to happen. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. These characters did not. Martha attested to the final resurrection, to be sure. She had faith that one day, but when Jesus is moving the stone, Martha's probably speaking up for the rest of them. What are you doing? Now, as we continue to read in John, we see some of the same mentality towards death 
even in Jesus' resurrection. The Pharisees, remember that while Jesus was still alive, he said that he would rise again. So what did they do? Well, they moved a stone in front of the tomb. They asked Pilate to keep guards by the tomb. Why? Because they were afraid that Jesus was going to raise from the dead? No, because they were afraid that Jesus' disciples were going to steal his body. And later in John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, finds it empty, comes back, and tells the disciples what? They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where to look to. Where we don't know where they have laid him. Peter and John arrive at the same conclusion. And in verse 8, it says, They did not under the, understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now, by this time, when we get to John chapter 11, Jesus has already predicted to the disciples and to those following him that he would die, that he would be buried, and that he would raised from the dead. He already told them that. And in John chapter 11, Jesus point blank tells Martha, your brother will rise again. How does she see that? Yes, I know that in the last day he will. Martha definitely expected Lazarus to rise in the final resurrection, but given her and others' response to Jesus asking the tomb to be opened, Lazarus' death is pretty much a done deal. Yet, when Lazarus is brought back to life, death's power is broken. The authority of Jesus is seen in his authority over death. Death's finality is no longer final. And as we read this miracle, as we read of this, we can't help but see the foreshadowing to Jesus' own resurrection. Right? Consider the purpose statements here in chapter 11. Look at verse 15. It says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. He tells Martha in verse 40, you will see the glory of God. And in verse 42, Jesus says as he's praying, I, I prayed this so that the people standing around me may believe that you sent me. What is he doing? The purpose of raising Lazarus was not to bring their attention to Lazarus. The purpose of the resurrection, in some ways, was to bring attention to the resurrection, but not just in that moment. No. What Jesus was doing, ultimately, was bringing glory to God. And by bringing glory to God, they would see that Jesus had been sent by God. This was one of those moments that Jesus must have come from God to any reasonable witness of the event. They had to come to this conclusion, right? I mean, and if raising Lazarus brought glory to God, how much glory does God receive when Jesus rose from the grave? And not only his resurrection, but those who will be raised. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. So this is a taste of what's to come. And as we read in verse 45... 
of John chapter 11. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. They came to a funeral. They left attending a celebration. Now next week, we're going to be talking, we'll be spending more time looking at the response. For now, we see these people coming to console Mary and Martha, only to have Mary and Martha's brother come back to life. Now, this outcome, it's just not an option when you go to a funeral. And I don't think it was an option when they went to Mary and Martha's place either. I mean, as Christians, we understand the final resurrection, right? But when we go to a funeral, if we attend a funeral, we don't have the expectation that the person that we are grieving is going to join us when we leave. You know... And I'm not trying to be irreverent here. And this is where I think this, te- this, this, this account of Jesus and the resurrection really starts to get teeth. It's not as if Jesus stopped and helped someone with a flat tire. That's forgettable. You know, you ever got a flat tire? And he pulled off to the side of the road. Some dude you don't know pulls over, like helps you out. Maybe, you know, gets back on, maybe makes phone call, whatever. That, that kind of stuff happens, and you're thankful for it. It's, it's extraordinary, right? But in a couple of years, you forget about that. I guarantee you, the people who were there would never forget this. This is like one of those moments where, for the rest of their life, they will remember where they were. It's like one of those moments, you know? Where were you when? These people who were here, who saw what they saw, I doubt they just went home, went to bed, and, okay, on to the next day. Everyone there who saw it, everyone who was mourning Lazarus' death, but later celebrating his new life, they would be changed forever. And this is why... And I'll put it this way. This story actually comes with a cost. When you read this, it comes with a cost. What do I mean by that? Well, for many, this story really is just kind of an embellishment to Christianity. You know, Jesus was a good man. He's a good teacher. You know what he needs? He needs some magic. And so over the years, Jesus' story becomes like a big fish story fish just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And Jesus, those Christians, they're just not content to have him be like a good teacher. They're not just content to have him be like this man who lived a while ago and taught and loved and and was helpful and then just died like the rest of us. No. We've got to give him some powers. And that's the way many approach this account and accounts like it. That's kind of what Thomas Jefferson did with his journal. And frankly, to our unbelieving world, isn't that just the reasonable thing to do? Like I said, you don't go to funerals with high expectations of resurrection. And this is why by raising Lazarus, we see Jesus overturning our instinctive response to death. 
we see him overturning that the death is not final. But then also, in the second part, really this is the implications of this account. We see Jesus asserting himself into our lives. Things are not the same. And they never will be, for the same, be the same for the people who were there. And if you take the Bible seriously, and you read this account, it can't be the same for you either. It can't be. Here's what I mean. I want us to meditate for the time that remains on the significance and the implications of this miracle. And as we look at the implications of this account, I really want to address two groups of people that are in this room. Those who are skeptical, perhaps, or don't believe. And we're glad you're here. And then those who do believe that Jesus really is the resurrection of the life and the life and really did raise Lazarus. So what I want to do is just spend some time talking to those of you who might be skeptical of this account. Who look at this and say, yeah, I'm not really so sure about that. It's a great story. I'm glad you like it. But I, I just want to walk through some things with you. And I want to do this in love. I don't want this to be a condescending time. Nor would I want you to walk out of this room thinking that this is a room full of people that judge you. But we need to take this account seriously. And the implications of it seriously. You have to admit, okay? If this really is true, if someone really could do that, what Jesus did, then he'd pretty much earn the right to tell you whatever he wanted to. And he pretty much earned the right to tell you to do whatever he wanted you to do. You'd listen to them because they just raised a person from the dead. You know, you probably shouldn't say that. Okay. <laughs> you know, here's what I'd like you to do. Okay. I mean, seriously, right? This person just raised someone who is dead for four days. It's got to stand for something. Jesus said in verse 42 in this passage, he says, I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus said he wanted those around him to see that he came from his Father. That means Jesus carried authority because he came from God himself. Death is the ultimate threat to all of us. This is our greatest enemy. It's the consequence of sin. But death is the ultimate threat. I mean, we kind of see this on TV. You know, imagine someone demanding that you do something, and if you say no, you know, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, on TV, maybe, you know, they're robbing a bank, they pull a gun. You know, that, oh, okay, okay, I'll give you my money, right? Um, like, Jesus wouldn't be threatened by that. And, and I don't mean to be silly here, but when, even when you think of what Pilate said to him at his crucifixion, he says, I have the power to lay my own life down. But what else does he say? I have the power to take it back up again. Death was not a threat. If this really is true, death is not a threat to Jesus. Consider the weight of what we're talking about. Jesus claimed to be the resurrection and the life. 
He raised the man from the dead. You can't just be an admirer of Jesus, a follower from afar, or somehow loosely affiliated with him. This miracle won't let you. Either he did it or he didn't. Now let's say he didn't do it. Let's say this resurrection thing is just a metaphor. It's not real. Okay? Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Let's just say this whole resurrection thing is one big metaphor. It's a nice story, but it's just not real. Well, let's look at what the Apostle Paul says about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, that's those who have who were Christians and have died, they perished permanently. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all men most to be pitied. You know what Christianity is without the resurrection? It's hopeless. Hopeless. We have no hope if there is no resurrection. That's why I made the statement earlier before, you cannot have Christianity without the resurrection. The resurrection is the linchpin. Paul says the whole house of cards falls apart. But let me take it a step further. If you don't have the resurrection, consider how unkind Jesus is. Consider even how cruel he is. Going to a funeral... Digging up the person. I mean, no, they didn't have shovels in the dirt, but they opened the grave. Consider how cruel Christians can be. I mean, this is what we do at funerals for Christians. We read passages like this, and we give hope, saying, this death is not final. All we're doing is giving a sedative. It's like what Karl Marx called Christianity, right? The opiate for the masses. Without the resurrection, Christianity is a cruel joke, and we are, of all people, most hopeless. And you know what? If you're listening to this and you're, you're skeptical, ask the Christians around you if they agree. And I bet they'll say, yeah. Because of, we're in that same passage, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, or 15. Because now Christ has been raised from the dead. <coughs> so what if, instead of, no, he hasn't. He didn't. 
this can't be real. Skeptic, what if it is real? What if it is real? If it's true, what kind of person is Jesus? If it's true, no one has the power, the ability to look at death and in Christ say, this is it. We have no hope. No. Jesus then is the one who goes, and in this passage we see him weeping with his friends. We see him mourning, but then having something to be able to do about it. We see Jesus undoing the wages of sin. Why? Because through him is the gift of God, which is what? Eternal life. That is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is what Christianity is grounded upon. The authority of our Savior over your greatest enemy, sin and death. And for those of us who believe in him, who trust in him, he's going to do the same thing for us or for those who have died before us in Christ as he did with Lazarus. That there will be a voice that calls out and there will be a literal body resurrection. Why? Because Jesus literally bodily raised from the dead. That is true. That is real. That gives hope because it is truth. Not just because it's wishful thinking. Not just because it's a good metaphor and kind of makes us feel good, especially when we're in pain. No, we don't put our arms around a person who's grieving and tell them a story to make them feel better for the moment. No, we give them a person. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Skeptic. Won't you take the time to take this account of Jesus seriously? It will not do, it will not do to just look at him as a good man. You, you just can't do that. It, you cannot be intellectually honest and do that. And you can't look at the other people that are Christians around you that really hold on to and you can't do that either. Instead of leaning on your own understanding, won't you instead put your faith in the one who has authority over death. That's our plea to you today. That's what Christ would have you do. But then, to those who are in Christ, to those who read this and say, yes, this is my Lord and Savior. He raised Lazarus from the dead. It would do us well to understand, to, to understand or to grasp the full significance of what it is that we believe Martha demonstrates this in verse 24, right? I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Martha had belief. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world, she says in verse 27, which, by the way, sounds an awful lot like John 20, 31, the whole point of the book. Yet we have her in verse 39 saying, by this time there's an odor. Pastor Tim preached in previous weeks, Martha's faith, her belief in Christ was legitimate, but Christ was about to show her the fuller significance of what she believed. Consider what Christ did for Lazarus, and then consider the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. You believe this as a Christian. You agree with Martha's testimony, but do you grasp 
the fuller significance of that belief to your life today? Are you considering other changes that he can make in your life? As we learned before, death and its finality wasn't that different back then as it is now. When people are dead, they're dead. Yet Jesus can bring about the most unlikely, the most improbable changes in life. In, in your life as a Christian, right? Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. But in verse 5, it says, you have been made alive in Christ. Romans chapter 6 says that in your unbelief, you were a slave to sin. Yet you have been made a slave to righteousness. You can't but help live righteously. Not perfectly, but righteously. As a Christian, that's true of you. And we see what Jesus did in changing people throughout the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. What does Nathaniel say about Jesus? Can anything good come from Nazareth? A little prejudice, don't you think, Nathaniel? What does Jesus do? Jesus appeals to him, calls him to be a disciple, disciple, and changes him. What does he do with the woman at the well? He tells her of her true need. She changes, accepts Christ, even when living a life of sin. How about the woman caught in adultery in John 8? Same thing. Go and sin no more. He took people and changed them. Even the disciples there at the very end of John, chapter, of, of John where they fail miserably at his greatest time of need. What can he do? What has he done to change them? So that as we look in the book of Acts, these men turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. But practically, you might push against this in your own day-to-day -day situations. Yes, Jesus can raise the dead. But he can never take away the shame that I feel for what I've done. You don't know what I've done. And that shame's just not going to Yes, Jesus raised the dead. But I will never forget about the way that that person treated me. I can't forget it. I know Jesus that raised the dead, but I'm always going to be an addict. I know Jesus raised the dead. Frankly, I've been burnt so many times, I don't think I can trust anyone again. If we can believe that Jesus calls the dead to raise in life, shouldn't we also believe that God can change the hearts of those we pray for? Amen. Our own heart, even? That's right. Shouldn't we believe that, and I think of those who pray for wayward children, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray. And nothing seems to happen. Yet. Shouldn't you believe that every day they wake up above ground is an opportunity for them to repent? And that God can do a change in their life? Think of those who, maybe through fault of your own or no fault of your own, have dysfunctional relationships with parents, siblings, friends, co-workers. Don't you think that God can grant humility to them and to you? That apologies can be offered? Past mistakes can be acknowledged and forgiveness can be accepted? You know, last month, we had Sunday evening where we prayed for individuals in our church that were struggling physically and have been for quite some time. We pray for individuals who are struggling spiritually and have for quite some time. You know, that prayer wasn't just like part of the order of service. Shouldn't we believe that if Jesus Christ has raised 
Lazarus from the dead, if Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, that he can change bodies and hearts. Now this is dangerous territory. You know why it's dangerous? Because it has hope. And hope can be a dangerous thing. I say dangerous just because you have to, in a sense, let your heart go there. And if you've let your heart go there in the past, only to get it like burnt, it's hard to let it out there again. Pastor Tim read a quote by C.S. Lewis last week. I can't remember it. I didn't put it in my notes, but it came to mind. It's in last week's notes about love. Read it. Because there's a vulnerability there that comes when we trust in God and we give him the benefit of the doubt. We believe because our hope is tempered with thy will be done. Our belief is in what God can do and it comes into agreement with what he has purposed to do. God can do what he purposes to do. And one thing is certain. One thing is certain. Whatever God chooses to do, you get Jesus. You always get Jesus. So I went to college uh, at a place, it was a Christian university, and the college that I went to, um, we often had times of prayer, and uh, we often closed our days of prayer. And um, I'm, I'm in college stage now, like with my kids, so, you know, the whole, like, paying for college is, is a thing, you know, it's kind of a big thing. Um, you know, when you're a college student as well, how are we going to pay for this, you know? So I, I had one uh, friend, he was one, one room down, and... Um, he was a senior. I was a sophomore. He was a senior and was engaged to be married and had quite a school bill. And um, he was praying. This is the end of the first semester. And, and his bill was so big that he wasn't going to be able to come back in the second semester unless this bill got paid down significantly. And he was going to work as hard as he could over the, the winter break to try to get as much. And um, so, but he wanted us to pray. And so we're praying, God, God, provide for. And so we pray and we pray and we pray, and we're hoping to see him again in the second semester. And we get back to school, and there he is. And, and he shared with us, he said, you would not believe this. I went down to the financial office, maybe the bursar's office or something, and they looked at my bill, and it's zero. There's nothing on the bill. Like, I don't know anything. And we're like, praise God! God did this! And we're so excited. And, and, and again, this... Where I went to the university, there were often testimonies of this, and I'm kind of skeptical, just by nature, kind of science my background, really critical, it's not good. Um, but just kind of like, I would hear those things like, yeah, yeah, I'm like, whatever. Well, then this happened, I'm like, look at what God did. So we're just praising God for this, right? Just so thankful. He's finishing, he's able to finish his, his final semester, debt's paid, all that. So fast forward a month. We meet his group and we're praying. He's like, hey, so I found out something. It's like I went back to the, the financial office to, you know, pay my month's bill. And um, he said they made a mistake. <laughs> so the account that his uh, bill was in, I guess they did some switching of accounts over the Christmas time. And they moved that balance from one account to the next account. And didn't tell him about it. So, you know, when they went to the bursar's office and, and looked at the balance, there's no balance because there's no balance in that account. 
But there's another account that has this guy's name and has all that money still owed. And come to find out, outside of the money he put in, that he worked for over the Christmas break, there wasn't a dime put towards the bill. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And nothing was paid. Did God mess up? Did God fail? Actually, no. Because what did happen was the office admitted their mistake and he was at a month into the semester and had they caught this at the beginning of the semester, they probably would have said, no, you can't come. But hey, you're here already. We'll make some accommodations so you can at least finish. So their minds were changed in a pretty extraordinary way. God also allowed for a few other jobs to come up that he could work to help pay it down. So it's kind of like God provides, but maybe not like with the home run swing. Maybe he does it just in normal, common, ordinary, grace ways. But you know what that also did for my friend? It gave him a greater love and appreciation for Jesus Christ. And isn't that better? I know it sounds very cliche, but seriously, isn't that better? Like, isn't that why we're on the planet to begin with? To give glory to God by making disciples and becoming more like our Savior, Jesus Christ? Mary and Martha... We're like, Jesus, if you'd only been here. Jesus gave them something better than Lazarus' resurrection. He gave them himself. That's right. I am the resurrection and the life. And when we are confronted, even with death, Jesus is no different. He is the resurrection. He is the life. And so... Next week, I mean, you, you, you read the story and you think, how could anyone like not believe in Jesus? And in fact, there's a fork in the road. That's right. And there's one way, which as a Christian, you're like, yes, absolutely. But then there's another way that's like, he becomes, he, he goes from good teacher to threat. That's right. He's no longer just what Nicodemus said in John 3. We know that you are a, a teacher come from God. Now, now it's there's a bounty on his head. How do you get to that point? For all of you under the speaking of this voice, of my voice, of hearing the word, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's not just someone to be admired. He's not just a cultural icon. Or perhaps a necklace to wear around your neck. Or a rabbit's foot to help give you comfort when time gets wrong. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Amen. Would you trust him? And if you have trusted him, would you pray that God may help you grow in the significance of what it is he has done in the resurrection and what he is still doing in your life and in the lives of others? Father, we are so grateful. We have hope. But Lord, often we, we find our hope unrealized because your timing is just that. It's your timing. Lord, we thank you for having the end of the story. We thank you that 
in your grace, in your kindness, you have seen fit for us to be living at a time where we have so much wealth of knowledge of what Jesus said and did and how our brothers and sisters in Christ over the centuries have expounded and developed. So, Lord, we as Christians of all are most accountable. Help us not to shortchange the power of God in salvation to change our lives and the lives of others. May your will be done and may your name be glorified. We thank you.